commentaries on the four last books of Moses, arranged in the form of a harmony. Volume 4, by John Calvin. Numbers chapter 14, verses 10 to 12. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Verse 10. But all the congregation bade stone them. When these wicked men began by murmuring against God and openly casting censure upon him, no wonder that they should also rage against his servants. For when we endeavor to subdue pride, it generally begets cruelty. And so also, when iniquity is reproved, it always ends at last in fury. Caleb and Joshua did not constrain them by force of arms, neither did they menace them, but only persuaded them to trust in God's promise, and not to hesitate to advance into the land of Canaan. Yet, because in their obstinacy the people had determined not to believe God, they champ the bit, as it were, upon being chastised, and desire to stone their approvers. How great was the impetuosity of their wrath is manifest from this, that God does not attempt to appease their fury, nor to restrain them by threats or by his authority, but openly displays his power from heaven, and miraculously protects his servants by the manifestation of his glory, as if he were rescuing them from wild beasts. There is indeed no express mention made of the cloud, but we may infer that the sign to which they were accustomed was given not merely to terrify them, but also to cast them prostrate, so that they might be deprived of their power to inflict injury, and might desist even against their wills. For the majesty of God, although it truly humbles believers only, yet sometimes subdues the reprobate and the lost or renders them astounded in all their ferocity. 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, God remonstrates with respect to their indomitable obstinacy, because they had just now hesitated, not petulantly, to despise and reject him with the most atrocious insults, and notwithstanding all the clearest manifestations of his power. For I know not whether the sense which some give be suitable when they translate the verb na'atz to provoke. Jerome comes nearer to the genuine sense, how long will they detract me? But let us be contented with the genuine intention of God, which he confirms by the succeeding antithesis, where he complains that he is disparaged because they do not take into consideration the many miracles whereby he had abundantly testified his power and loving kindness. And thus he reproves their contempt, because they deliberately refuse credit to the many signs of which the accumulation at least ought to have subdued or corrected their stubbornness. The denunciation of their final punishment follows, 
together with a statement of the atrocity of their crime. For the particle, how long, indicates its long continuance as well as the enduring patience of God. He had indeed punished others severely, but only for example's sake, in order that the name of their race should remain undestroyed, whereas he now declares that he will deal with them as with persons in a desperate condition who cease not to make a mock of his patience. Hence we are taught that although God is placable in his nature, still the hope of pardon is deservedly cut off from unbelievers who are so obdurate as that he produces no effect upon them by his hand or by his countenance or his word. He then briefly adverts to the use of the signs, that is, that their object was that the knowledge or experience of them should awaken hopes of success. If the apparent contradiction offends anyone, that God should declare the people to be cast off when it was already decreed that he would pardon them, a reply may be sought from elsewhere in three words. For God does not here speak of his secret and incomprehensible counsel, but only of the actual circumstances, showing what the people had deserved and how horrible was the vengeance which impended, in respect to their wicked and detestable revolt, since it was not his design to keep Moses back from earnest prayer, but to put the sincerity of his piety and the fervency of his zeal to the proof. And, in fact, he does not contravene the prohibition, except upon the previous exhibition of some spark of faith. See Exodus 32. Verses 13 to 17. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. Verse 13. Then the Egyptians shall hear it. Moses here, according to his custom, stands in the breach of the wall, as it is said in Psalm 106.23, to sustain and avert the anger of God, which else would burst forth, since through his intercession it came to pass that the fire was speedily extinguished and the people were not consumed. 
In order to support his request, he only objects that God's holy name would be the sport of the wicked if the people should perish altogether. I have endeavored to reduce to their proper meaning the words which translators variously render. First, he says, The Egyptians shall hear, whereas it is a thing sufficiently notorious and testified by miracles, that this people was rescued from among them by thy might. The same report will also obtain currency among the nations of Canaan, who have already heard that thou art the protector of this people, and have undertaken the charge of governing them. If, therefore, they should altogether perish, all the nations which have heard of thy fame will cast the blame on thee, and will think that thy power is broken down in the midst of its course, so that thou couldst not carry through to the end the work thou hadst undertaken. The substance amounts to this, that because God had manifested by clear and evident signs that he was the deliverer of this people, he would be exposed to the reproach of the wicked, unless he should preserve in safety those whom he had once redeemed. For nothing else would occur to the minds of the heathen nations except that God was unable to maintain his blessing, however desirous he might be to do so. And assuredly, this is no ordinary effect of God's goodness, so to connect the glory of his name with our salvation, that whatever is adverse to us brings with it reproach upon him, because the mouth of the wicked will be open to blaspheme. And this will, in fact, turn to our advantage, if on our part, without dissimulation, and in zealous sincerity, we beseech God to uphold his own glory in saving us. For many boldly plead the name of God in their own behalf, although they are unaffected by any real care or love for it. Moreover, because the more illustrious God's exercise of his power has been, the more insolently are the ungodly disposed to blaspheme, if it has appeared to fail. We must always entreat of him that he should not desert the work of his hands which he has begun in us. To this effect are the words, They have heard that thou art seen face to face. For, if the people's safety were not maintained, the failure would have been imputed to none but God, who had put forth the power of his hand to preserve them. In fine, since their astonishing exodus had been a testimony of God's favor, so if he had suffered the people to perish in the desert, all would have considered it a sign of his weakness, inasmuch as it was not probable that he should not accomplish what he desired unless he were unable to do so. 17. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great. He derives another ground of confidence from the vision in which God had more clearly manifested his nature, from whence it appears how much he had profited by it, and what earnest and anxious attention he had paid to it. Hence, however, we derive a general piece of instruction that there is nothing more efficacious in our prayers than to set his own word before God, and then to found our supplications upon his promises, as if he dictated to us out of his own mouth what we were to ask. Since then God had manifested himself to Moses in that memorable declaration, which we have already considered, 
he was able to derive from thence a sure directory for prayer. For nothing can be more sure than his own word, on which, if our prayers are based, there is no reason to fear that they will be ineffectual, or that their results should disappoint us, since he who has spoken will prove himself to be true. And, in fact, this is the reason why he speaks, that is, to afford us the grounds for addressing him, for else we must needs be dumb. Since I have expounded the 18th verse elsewhere, let my readers refer to that place. 19. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people. In order to encourage his hope of pardon, he first sets before himself the greatness of God's mercy, and then the past instances by which it had been proved that God was inclined to forgiveness. And indeed, the mercy of God continually invites us to seek reconciliation whenever we have sinned. And, though iniquities heaped upon iniquities, and the very enormity of our sins might justly make us afraid, still the abundance of his grace of which mention is here made must needs occur to us so as to swallow up all dread of his wrath. David also, betaking himself to this refuge, affords us an example how all alarm is to be overcome. Psalm 51.1 But since the bare and abstract recognition of God's goodness is often insufficient for us, Moses applies another stay in the shape of experience. Pardon, he says, as thou hast so often done before. For since the goodness of God is unwearied and inexhaustible, the oftener we have experienced it, the more ought we to be encouraged to implore it. Not that we may sink into the licentious indulgence of sin, but lest despair should overwhelm us when we are lying under the condemnation of God, and our own conscience smites and torments us. In a word, let us regard this as a most effective mode of importunity, when we beseech God by the benefits which we have already experienced, that he will never cease to be gracious. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources, and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.